Good morning. All right. Hey, if you have a Bible, we're in the book of Acts. And in our Acts series today, we're actually in the book of Acts. And we're going to finish up chapter 1. And if you're new around here, what we're doing is we're studying through the entire book of Acts. We started at the beginning of the year. Right now, we're in like a series within our Acts series called Positioning for Power. And what we're doing is seeing what happened at Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 14 there, when the disciples gathered together in the upper room. They were in the right place. And so we spent five weeks talking about what does it look like to be a right place. They were also with the right people. And so we're going to finish that little series up this morning. And then next week we'll kick off. They were doing the right practices. And it was those three things, right people, right practices, right place, that positioned them for power. The Holy Spirit then fell and revival began. It is our hope to be positioned for power, both corporately as a church and then individually uh, so that God might continue to redeem and sanctify each and every one of us. And so today, uh, as we look at the, the final uh, segment here of our right people, what I want to do is just lay out some of the principles found in the book of Acts and then the rest of the New Testament on uh, who God says are the right kind of people to be a part of his movement. Now, uh, in both of course, the church and in the scriptures, and, and because it's in the true in the church and the scriptures, we also now see it in the world that the, the kind of the conversation of the day uh, in business circles, leadership circles, military circles, sports world, all of it is you have to have the right people. I mean, how many times have we seen the Browns sign somebody and say, this is going to be it, right? You throw them in the right culture. Nope, they're the wrong people. They continue to lose, right? You have to have the right people surrounding other right people in order to accomplish what God wants you to accomplish. Leadership books, military books, everything. It's all about get the right people. Sometimes they'll say, even before the right product, the right service, the right mission or objective, just have the right people. In the scriptures, it lays out for the church who those right people are. Now, this morning, what I've been praying for for each and every one of you as I teach through this uh, is that you, through the Holy Spirit, would know how these principles apply not just to our team here as a church congregation, but into every element of your life, into your marriage, your marriage team, right? Uh, your family unit, your work environment. Uh, and it, it, I won't really connect to all of those. I'll try to connect it to marriage a little bit this morning. Um, but these principles, because they're true scripturally, are then true in all the other other areas of our life. In the very beginning here, uh, in the book of Acts, let me just set up the situation. There are 11 disciples or apostles, which they're going to be called next. Um, there are 11 of them left. And the reason there's 11 is because they lost a team member. And they lost a team member very publicly, uh, very famous, famously, uh, in a very, well, crazy way. Judas. He betrayed Christ, so he betrayed also his, uh, the other 11 disciples, and he did this with the kiss, right? Then Jesus is taken away and crucified. We saw there what happened to Judas later. Didn't turn out very well for him. And uh, in this then, the apostles know we're one guy short. We need a full squad, if you grew up watching the epic, incredible trilogy, The Mighty Ducks, you remember that incredible scene when the Bash brother shows up in the middle of the intermission and they all get excited and pumped up because they're full team. He is clapworthy. Thank you, Zach. He shows up and everything changes. Why? Because they have now the full 
team. The apostles knew this too, and so they even quote a scripture. They say, let another take his office. We need to get back to full squad level. And so what we see here in the beginning of Acts is a foundational principle for how all team, family, church uh, is supposed to operate, the kind of the principle underneath. And then through the rest of the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit through his writers um, begins to lay out these are the principles of being on, on, on God's team. Now, uh, what we're going to see here is they're not skills, They're not personalities. They're not Myers-Briggs. They are uh, heart traits. Heart traits. It's not that skills aren't important, not that personalities, you know, don't jive better than others. But we think what is most important here is what's going on in the heart. What's going on in the heart? And so, of course, this applies to every team in our church, our elder team, our staff team, uh, our volunteer teams, of which many of you are on, our whole team as a congregation, right? All of these principles will apply, and it is important that we learn them so we know what it is to be the right people doing what God wants us to do together. So in the story, the 11 apostles now are like, we've got to figure out a 12th guy. We need, we need to fill out the team. And so what they do is they uh, say in Acts chapter 1, verse 25, they say, so one of the men, right, who has been with us in the time that the Lord, all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. He said, first, let's grab somebody who's been around for a little while. Let's get somebody on the team who walked with us through those early days, who knew what it was like when uh, Jesus looked out and said uh, some of his harsher teachings or stronger teachings, and like everybody left, but that guy stuck around. Uh, let's uh, get somebody who was with us before it was, uh, before we knew the Holy Spirit was going to come and empower us, like Jesus had just told them, before we knew the resurrection was going to be real. Have you ever been a part of something that was kind of going really well, uh, and then when it starts going really well, people start start showing up and they're like, hey, you got a spot for me? And it's like, yeah, we, we may have a spot for you, um, but it's one thing to join in when things are going really, really well. It's another thing they know to be faithful when things aren't. And so they said, let's find somebody, right, who's been around for a little while, not just for those reasons, but also uh, because then there's been an ability to test the heart. See, the easiest thing to evaluate is somebody's skill. The easiest thing to evaluate, just go grab a cup of coffee, right? It's somebody's personality. But what we're going to see down here, they're going to say, God, you know the heart. You know the heart. We can see the skill. We can see the personality. We can see the outside. But you know the heart. And so, Lord, give us the, the person with the right heart underneath. Now, what does that heart look like? Well, in verse 26, or excuse me, 25, he contrasts the heart of the person they're looking for for the heart of Judas. Here's what's going on in the whole Judas story. Here's what's going on underneath. I love this text because it's a reflection on all that happened. He says this, He says, Judas, we need someone to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside. He turned aside to what? To go to his own place, to go to his own place. Judas wanted to build his own thing. He didn't want to be a part of the team. He he didn't want to submit himself. And what they're saying is the person we're looking for, alluded to this in verse 22, is somebody who wants to be about the witness and the proclamation of Jesus. John the Baptist said it this way, I must decrease and he must increase. The heart 
of the, um, uh, the person who isn't the, the right person is the person who's trying to build their own thing, trying to build their own place. And in the church or in the world, this is easy to fall into. Maybe you think, well, of course, nobody would fall into that in the church, right? No, this happens all the time where uh, we begin to seek our own fame or our own name. And this can happen in big levels, right? And it can happen in small. I mean, some of us have probably been in church context where somebody became like, I don't know, head usher. And all of a sudden that was like their spot, It was their position. Then the lay of the room was changed and there was no longer a need for ushers. And it was like, you're taking my identity. And it's kind of silly, but but maybe you've been in that. And what happens is we begin, even in a ministry context, right, to to want our own place, to covet a a stage or to uh, covet a position, a title, or whatever it might be. And Judas here, think about this. He's in front of Jesus who is over everything, and he wants to carve out his own little place to the one who owns all of the cattle on a thousand hills. Judas is willing to trade that out for 30 pieces of silver. His own place. This is what happens when we begin to seek our own thing. We reject God, his big plan, what he's doing to try to carve out our own little place. So the first step in being a right person, and this is the one that all of the rest are built on, is to be a team member, not a self-server. It's not about us. It's not about how important we are. It's not about what are we building for us. It's about do we have a heart that is about the ministry and the proclamation of Christ? Can we say what John the Baptist said? I must decrease. He must increase. As I go through the rest of these principles, you're going to see that at the heart of each of these, by the way, is humility. The way we say it around here is real leadership serves people. That, that, that's the type of godly service and leadership that we see all throughout the scriptures. That Christ who, uh, his own place, Christ had his own place because all of his place is all of this place. Um, he was willing to give that up so that he might serve us. So the first step in being the right people is not to pursue our own place. Not to pursue our own thing. Not to have it our own way. But to serve others, to be about the, the proclamation of Christ, not our own thing. I've watched my wife for uh, six years. If you're new around here, my wife, uh, she's uh, our worship leader. She was up here in the middle. Uh, and uh, I've watched her for six years lead our band like this. And it's taught me so much about leadership because I've watched her for six years practice this and uh, never to like have to take the stage, never have to be the center of attention. In fact, uh, first worship leader I've ever worked with like this where I'm like, sometimes I'm like, Lindsay, you have to lead more songs, <laughs> right? And, and like, if you don't know about worship band culture, that's not always the way it is, right? Where I'm like, I need you to sing a little bit more, right? Uh, and, and what she's done for six years is just serve faithfully her band. I was asking her the other day in a meeting, like some of the like, values of her leadership, like in her mind, what she's thinking. And she said this phrase that I thought was, was really brilliant. She said, it's like this fall on your sword mentality. And I was like, okay, explain that to me. And she said, if somebody has to change keys, I'll change keys. If somebody has to learn a new part, I'll learn a new part. Somebody doesn't get to lead a song a week, I won't lead the song. If somebody has to learn an extra song the day before, I'll learn the extra song. And it's just this, how do I constantly serve the rest of the team? And as a result now, we all get the privilege of watching the entire team week in and week out worship and honor God. 
Now, I um, have seen this happen, and I see the, the, the incredible culture that it's created in us. And I point this out because when you operate in this godly way, then um, the whole church and, or, or your whole circle, if you want to apply it outside of the church world, gets to experience the benefits of it. I also bring it up because I, I wanted to let you guys know um, that, so we've got baby number three coming, and baby number three, yeah, we're excited. Um, Baby number three is coming in July, and I already know what you're thinking. Does that mean you're going to name him July? No. Okay. Um, maybe Julius, but not July. And so uh, baby number three, if you don't understand that, we have a son named August who happened to be born in August. I was hoping he would be born in July, so people wouldn't ask if we named him August because he was born in August. And when we named him August, he was the only kid we knew that was named August. Now every other kid is named August. So anyway, all right. Baby number three is coming in July. And... Um, it's been a run six years here in the church and, and three kids and all of that. And so um, after the last baby, I think after Reagan, we had Reagan on Monday. Uh, I think Lindsay led worship the next Sunday. Okay. Um, we had August. She got three weeks off. Uh, and so now it's just a time to take a little bit of a break. And so I just want you guys to know, um, starting in June, Lindsay's going to be taking the rest of the calendar year off. Um, and it is just time for us as a family to rest a little bit and let her stay home with the kids and, and all of that kind of stuff. So I, we just want to let you guys know that. Um, and then... And, and, and thank you guys for, I just, I, I knew, um, you, you know, you guys would just be so gracious in that. Um, in that, we, you know, we needed somebody who was going to be able to step up. And so, um, Lindsay and I have been praying about that. Our team has been praying about that. And so, um, a lot of you guys know James. Maybe you don't know James by name. He led worship last week. He, um, usually plays the guitar. I call him James Earl Jones Ford. And, uh, James, uh, is going to be just kind of the interim uh, over this, uh, over our worship team. And why did we pick James? Uh, I mean, we're so much talent and so many great people and we, we you know, there's so many awesome people. But, but in James, we saw, I saw in James the same heart I see in Lindsay, which is just, I, I, it's not about me. It's just about elevating everybody else and kind of carrying um, the same spirit and attitude in our team. Uh, and so you'll see James up here a lot and he'll be over. And if you're, you know, a future band member out there, you'll get to hang out with James a little bit to the end of the year. Uh, because this principle, real leadership serves people, this idea that we need team members, not self-servers, uh, it needs to be rooted in every part of who we are. Now, beyond that, the scriptures get a little bit more practical. It starts with, there's the heart. Okay, it's about the heart first. You have that real leadership serves people mentality. And then the scriptures give three very clear principles on who the right kind of people are and who we need to be in order to operate this, okay? And so uh, here's the, the first of those three, uh, three principles. I'm going to go to Titus chapter 3. And we've been spending a lot of time in Titus because it's one of Paul's instructional letters on how the church is supposed to operate. Uh, Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. We'll say it this way. Uh, the right kind of people in the scriptures are they're people who are post-denominational, not doctrinal disputers. Now, let me clarify this. The scripture says foolish, and I preached on this whole thing last week. If you missed it, you can go back and watch it. Uh, the, the scripture says avoid foolish controversies. 
That doesn't mean we're supposed to avoid all um, potential tension. It doesn't mean we're supposed to shy away uh, because we're also told to contend for the faith. And so where this takes an incredible amount of biblical wisdom and Holy Spirit guidance is to understand the difference between foolish controversies and legitimate biblical concerns. This is not to suggest that doctrine doesn't matter. It's not to suggest that there aren't moments when you need to stand up. I preached on this last week, and I preached on it a few weeks ago before that. Uh, there are certain moments when real controversy uh, is, uh, rises up because um, falsehood or heresy, is, is the biblical term, has begun to emerge. Now, here's one of the ways this begins to happen uh, in, in our current culture. Okay, Foolish controversies tend to revolve around what I will call the theological fads of the day. And if you've been around the church long enough, you've seen this happen. And so when I was growing up in ministry, when I was a college student, the theological fad was hyper-Calvinism. And all the cool people were hyper-Calvinist. And so those are the podcasts that you listen to, and you had to grow the beard, and you had to have the pipe, and you had to have, like, your deep-seated belief in hyper-Calvinism, and that became the fad. And then a couple of years later, uh, there was this like swing back to let's learn our Jewish roots. And then uh, after that, we saw like the emergence of um, Bethel and, and what I would call like a pretty extreme Pentecostalism or charismaticism. Uh, and then, uh, you know, over the last couple of years, we've seen like the, the conversation around social justice. You could use the term wokeness. I'm not talking about legitimate biblical justice, right? I'm talking about uh, these, these other fads then that come to emerge and, and, and what we we see then is um, uh, either parts of the church or parts of a particular church like grab onto the theological fads. And sometimes some of you have been in environments where some of those fads, they weren't even completely biblical and accurate. And what they did is somebody got onto it, latched onto it, started proclaiming it. And you got a couple weeks or months or even years down the road and you go, wait a minute, what, what are we talking about now? And it's because they, they grabbed on to theological fads. And, it, and, and what happens when that happens is, is, is then the church or a person or a group begins to shift. And then what happens is division begins to occur. And so what, what's the antidote to that? Well, as Paul writes in another place, teach sound doctrine. We don't need the newest book by the new cool author. We have this book that has been true for 2,000 years. And so we just go back to it. We go back to it. We study it. We want to know it better. What also happens sometimes, we get caught up in this theological fad. You find yourself YouTubing that theological fad. Then you're 48 videos in. And after the 48th video, you're looking at everybody else going, they're morons. No one else knows anything. I've discovered the secret sauce. Right? Only to what? Five years later, there's a new one. And then five years later, there's a new one. What do we need to do? Let's just keep going back to the scriptures. Let's hold on to the truths and the doctrines that have been um, widely accepted and embraced for 2,000 years. Not looking for the new secret angle, just the classic sound doctrines of our faith, right? And not get caught up in these Foolish controversies. I mean, many of us can probably think of a moment when we were in a church context and the arguments uh, turned to the latest theological fad of the day and it ruined a friendship or it blew up a small group or if it was bigger, it blew up a whole church. 
We can see this in our own lives, right, on smaller ways. I mean, for those of us who are married, you ever been in a situation where you're like 27 minutes into the argument and you go, hold on, are we really fighting about this? Like, it's toothpaste. Just get what you want. We can afford it. And you just stop and you go, whoa, this is a foolish controversy. And, and the right people, Paul is saying, and through the Holy Spirit is, is saying, uh, are people who can just, who can tell the difference between the foolish controversies and, and the non-foolish controversies, who will unify around the core doctrines of the, of the church, okay? That's number one. Second principle, okay? The second principle is, is this. I'll call it unifiers, not dividers. Unifiers, not dividers. L- look at the next language, or the next verse. Uh, as for a person who stirs up division, a stir, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Woo! That's strong language. It's always a fun conversation with people to say, uh, to talk about where the strongest language in the Bible is pointed toward. So in the, in the Gospels, to the sinner or the religious? The religious. In, in, in the epistles then, this is strong. This is not three strikes, you're out. This is two strikes, you're out. You already start with one strike. Why is this so important? Well, uh, as I talked about last week, Jesus' high priestly prayer Uh, Paul's instruction to the church in Corinth, and then Peter's reflection to the church as a whole is all about what? Unity in the body. Unity in the church. And all three of these leaders, Jesus, Peter, and Paul, knew the importance, Peter and Paul obviously learned it from Christ, of church unity. And so some of the harshest or strongest uh, language in the New Testament is about those who would divide the church. Dividers. He says, we don't need dividers. We need unifiers. We need people who, who won't hop into the foolish controversies and divide. We need people uh, who can learn how to handle conflict in a biblical way. See, one of the ways that the division begins to occur is, of course, doctrinal disputes. That's why we addressed that last week. Uh, but this can happen in many other formats or, or fashions as well, uh, where division starts to break in due to methods, okay? Uh, and, and some of us probably have some crazy stories on how little things changed in a church, right? Like, uh, like the carpet or the sign out front or whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, like, division was present, this can happen um, when, uh, when, when leadership, uh, okay, uh, when, uh, in, in, when either leadership acts too authoritative, authoritarian, you know the word I'm looking for, authoritarian, there it is, um, and, uh, acts that way, or it can also um, work when people um, um, resist or reject proper church leadership uh, even uh, by, by not addressing issues in a biblical way. And so part of all of this, by the way, one of the traits in this is not going to be perfection because there's not going to be perfect people in the context of the church, right? Uh, and so it's then learning how do we create unity even in the midst of differences? 
And so even when there are doctrinal questions, it's certainly not wrong to bring them up. It's not divisive to bring up a doctrinal question. It's not wrong or divisive to bring up a question about methods or a question about maybe structure of the church or certain things that are happening. But there are wrong ways and there are right ways or biblical ways to do that. And what the scripture is warning about here are people who are divisive in nature uh, and are doing things unbiblically in such a way that can lead to division. Now, why is the scripture so strong on this? The scripture is so strong with this because uh, God knew that if a divisive person is left to continue to be divisive, then what's going to happen is eventually it's going to lead to a blow up and it's going to hurt a whole bunch of people. And some of us have walked through times like that. And it's probably because this warning wasn't heeded, right? You, one time, you see a bit of divisiveness begin to occur. You warn strongly, and you see it again remove for the protection of the church. Here's what's interesting. If you ask a bunch of Christians, all right, like, here, go. Get, get, I know this is, like, not doctrinally accurate, but, which, just hear me out. Okay. Um, if you ask people, like, what's worse? Okay, what's worse? The person who's caught in some sick, egregious sin right? Or the person who finds it out then tells other people and it leads to division. In the way things tend to play out, right, in the, in, in the church, the person who's caught in this, oh man, how sick, how evil, how disgusting, how gross, how this, how that. What happens in the scriptures though? In the scriptures, the divider, the gossip is actually, the, the warning against them is so much stronger The irony is the moment that gossip begins or division begins to settle in, it's like the scripture saying, this person is way guiltier than that. You say, well, what about 1 Corinthians when they kicked the person out who was caught in sin? Why? Why did they do that? It's really important. Two reasons. One, because it was public and blatant. Number two, because it was unrepentant. Because it was unrepentant. And we we often doctrinally misunderstand this. The issue wasn't even that the person had sinned. The issue was that the person was unrepentant and publicly blatant about their sin. The scriptures say here, somebody wants to be a divider, warn them once, warn them once. Second time, get rid of them. Get rid of them. Why? Because they're going to end up blowing things up. They're going to hurt people if you don't. Okay? Now, so what does this mean for us as a church family, right? What does this mean? It means um, that we have to get really good at addressing any issue that might emerge, okay, in a biblical fashion, which means we, we um, don't gossip, right, and we always take the issue to the person, okay, uh, and then where needed, we bring in other people, okay? It also means that, uh, according to the scriptures, that we need to have evidence, right, for the, uh, the accusations that are made, if that were to ever uh, emerge, okay, uh, that, and then we, we base everything in fact, right? We handle all of this in a godly way, and these are just biblical principles being laid out for what? For the sake of being right people to preserve the integrity and the beauty of God's church. Okay? Now, um, in, in our church context, uh, you know, unifiers, not dividers. Like, like, we have to practice this again at every single level. And, and so this, uh, you know, and our elder team, right, with, uh, so there's three of us, Tom, Frank, and I, and we have to practice this at this level. And there have been certain times, because in this context, uh, what we're talking about here is, again, not to avoid all conflict, but to handle conflict biblically, right? Uh, there have been times when we've been in elder meetings, and Tom or Frank would have to sit down, and they say, Stephen, I, I, I got to tell you something. Okay, tell me, right? And in this meeting, this is the proper way to say it. He says, I think you're wrong about this. 
Now, in that moment, I can either like push back, fight back, right? Stand my ground or go, okay, God's put you in my life for a reason. You're seeing something. I need to humble myself to see what you're seeing and to ask the Holy Spirit if there's something in there. Peter says it this way. I love, I love reading Peter's writing because think about it. He was so close to Jesus, right? He's established as the very first pastor ever. Uh, and then in his later letters, he's reflecting on what he's seen for 30 years. Here's what he says. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. A humble mind. What's a humble mind? You're going to be wrong sometimes. That's a humble mind. You're going to have to be confronted sometimes. That's a humble mind. It's also then telling us how do we approach people with a tender heart, with a, not, a, not an accusation, but a, a tenderness that says, brother, I love you. Sister, I love you, and I want to see this changed in you. And so a tender heart and bringing it up, a humble heart to hear, and then to let the Holy Spirit change. By the way, this can be applied to our marriages. So uh, Lindsay and I were having a conversation the other day, and Lindsay has this way of saying things, and the way she says them, it's like, ugh, right? So we were having this discussion, and as we were having this, this discussion, she got to this point where she said, oh, so do you want to get to a place in our marriage where I no longer have a right to speak that into your life? I was like, okay. I said, no, I don't, I, I don't. I don't ever want to get to that part because I, I fear the man I would become, right? Because marriage is about mutual sanctification. By the way, we live in a culture um, that is like, it's popular to say like, yep, the wife is always right. Yes, dear. It could be not more of an ungodly principle. And if your house is run like that, it's not operating under the scriptures and the Holy Spirit. Marriage is about mutual sanctification. It's about both of us being able to admit when we're wrong, submitting to each other, allowing ourselves to be sanctified through the other. And so it's not like 50-50, like it has to be 50 him, 50 her. It's, what's the Holy Spirit saying? What are the scriptures saying, right? And so when we learn to handle conflict in that way, right, whether it's in our marriage, right, or it's in our church, what happens? You're stronger as a result. Those of you guys who are married, you know this. When you handle conflict in your marriage in a biblical way, you, you become more committed to each other on the other side. It's the same thing in the church. If there can be conflict, if you handle it in a biblical way, there's more commitment on the other side. So this is the, the second principle, uh, not dividers, but unifiers in all possible ways. Here's the, uh, the third principle, okay? I'm saying third because the first one is really like a foundational idea uh, to have a heart for uh, the proclamation of Christ, not, not a self-server, right? And then these are the practical steps afterwards. Uh, the, the, the third principle then uh, is this, to be life givers in our language, uh, not gossips or life destroyers. And we see this all throughout the scriptures. In fact, James, Jesus' half-brother, he writes it like this. Let me find James, Hebrews, James. James chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The words we speak mean so much. I mean, I can just stop at that line. Do not speak evil against each other, 
brothers. We do not speak evil against each other, brothers and sisters. Watch what we say. I have to imagine all of us are guilty of this one, whether it's within the context of the church or the home or the friend group or whoever else. The reminder, and let this just be a reminder, to speak life with our words. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul gives the opposite. He says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for lifting up, that there may be grace to all who hear. That we can speak words of grace to each other. We can lift each other up with our language. I mean, it was just yesterday, I got a text message from somebody who's out of town and been watching uh, some of our previous sermons, and they sent me this text, and it, like, just like the way it lifted me up was, was great. And, and we can all remember times when we have said things, uh, and we know we shouldn't have said them. One of the principles that should guide us in the church is this. It's the reminder that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what we would not say about our actual brothers and sisters, we ought not to say about our brothers and sisters in Christ. That whole like old joke that's like, I, I can talk bad about my sister, but if you talk bad about my sister, I hit you in the face, right? The idea is that that's my brother and sister in Christ. And so if I wouldn't say that about my brother and sister in Christ, I'm not going to say it. Or my regular brother and sister, I'm not going to say it about them. If I wouldn't post that about my brother or sister, I, w- I won't post it about my brother and sister in Christ. And, and speak well then of each other. And, and uh, it's not just not to speak evil. That's half of it. Don't speak evil. The other half is that speak words of life. Speak words of grace. Speak words of encouragement. Speak words of hope to each other. Those are the right people, those who would do that. And then those three principles. So starting at the beginning again, recap. Real leadership serves people, or team members, not self-servers, not trying to create our own place. The best way to do that then uh, is to unify around core doctrine, to be a unifier, not a divider, uh, to not speak evil, but to speak well about and towards each other. And then another principle that kind of sits underneath it is this, uh, to be repentant, not defiant. Let me read you uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Says this, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Some of you, you have forgotten about this passage because we always tell people, even our brothers and sisters in Christ, don't judge me. Well, <laughs> we're supposed to. In a way, hear me out. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What's the principle here? In place? Is, is it to look at people who are caught in sin and condemn them? No, that's not the principle. The principle that's at play here is this, that we are in a relational community as a church in order to when we see something going on in someone's life that does not honor the scriptures, to be able to lovingly, gently point out to them, this isn't right. And the other principle then that has to sit on the bottom of all of this is for any of this to work is to be a people uh, that can humbly be repentant when we are wrong. I finish almost every wedding ceremony that I do uh, after talking about some of the doctrinal uh, ideas of marriage and the picture of marriage. I get to the end of it, and I always say, and in order for this to work, there's one skill you have to get really good at, saying I'm sorry and seeking forgiveness. Because you can understand all of the doctrine, and you can understand all of the principles, and you can have date night, and you can do everything else. But if you can't learn to say, I was wrong, and you can't learn to forgive the person when they say they're wrong, 
it's not going to work. And we can say in the church that we want to be unifiers, not dividers, and we want to have a real leadership serves people mentality, and we're going to unify around core doctrine, and we're going to speak well of each other. We can say all of that, but if we can't get good at admitting when we're wrong, seeking forgiveness proactively if we were wrong, being humble enough if somebody points out something to us that we did wrong, and then humbling ourselves and hearing it, then none of this other stuff will matter. But this sits underneath it, the humility to be able to do that. But if we can do that, if we can do that, and if we can operate in these ways, then I think we just get right back to where I left us off last week in 1 Peter, Peter's reflection of the beauty of a church that is operating in this way. Let me find Peter. I'll end here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. What's he saying? We're going to take a whole bunch of people who got a whole bunch of problems, who believe a whole bunch of different little things, and we're going to bring them all together through the death and resurrection of Christ and the unifying power of the Holy Spirit and the principles laid out today. They're going to come together, and they're going to proclaim Jesus to the world. And that's what he calls us to. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would continue to turn each and every one of us into the right kind of people, humbled before you, unified, humbled before each other. Father, I pray that as I spoke this morning, if there was any alarms going off in anyone's family life, marriage life, work life, about applying some of this stuff, that you would prompt that and move them toward that. But ultimately, Lord, we ask that you would continue to unify us as a church family so that we might accomplish all that you would have us to accomplish. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.